Hey there, it's Lou Carlozo, the host of the NMD Plus Productions podcast, Bankadelic in Chicago. Now, everyone wants to know about the future of banking. I know I do. And on today's Dave and Darm Demystify, they've got two words for you. The future is, ready, now, and Asia. And they explore what those answers mean with three fabulous guests, Eve Rushdie of the Simpulse Group, Nick Wilde, Managing Director, Asia Pacific at Thought Machine, and Fraser Wilkie, Associate Partner, Experience Design at Simpulse. Yet they also address one pertinent question, with the future come challenges and banks have yet to figure out exactly how to make banking a more creative, holistic experience. Well, Eves, Nick, and Frazier have some sage thoughts on that, too. It's time to hear them out on Dave and Darm Demystify. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify show. Dave. Dave and Darm Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery. Demystify. Welcome everybody to today's show. And this week we have three guests. So we've kind of gone large this week, and we're going to be talking about Asia and the opportunities for fintech in Asia. So we have Yves Rossetti and Fraser Wilkie from Simpulse and Nick Wilde from Thought Machines. So Yves, Fraser, would you like to introduce yourselves and talk a bit about Simpulse? And then Nick, it'd be great if you could do the same as well, please. Sure, happy to. Thanks a lot, Steve and Darmish. Happy to be here. My name is Yves Rushdie. <laughs> Very Swiss-sounding last name. It actually means hash browns. <laughs> Used to be a good tease in elementary school, but nowadays I think it's a very cool name, actually. My role, I'm CEO of Simpals. We're a boutique management consultancy firm focused on financial services and doing projects, meaning transformation. We're roughly 500 people globally. And since 12 years, I'm operating out of Asia, came here with my luggage and Starbucks as the office. And, <laughs> and 12 years in, we're 300 now in just APEC. So it's quite a bit of a success story. And now I'm, of course, working with our partners like Thought Machine, who have an equally impressive track record. Yeah. And looking after the virtual banking initiative and of course, global banking as well. Fabulous. What about you, Fraser? Hey, so I'm Fraser Wilkie. I'm just newly joined Simpulse, so I've been there two months. And really exciting opportunity. So we're branching out and we're really putting customer experience at the forefront. I've been designing in the financial services industry for 17 years. And actually, I've known Dave just as long. We kind of started out together a long time ago, <laughs> still talking to each other. But no, it's really exciting, the opportunity to come into a boutique consultancy, the focus on financial services. Definitely, Asia is the place to be at the moment, and we are really at the forefront of digital within financial space. Fabulous. Nick? 
Nick Wald. So I am leading the building out of Thought Machine operations in Asia Pacific. We've been open for just about 18 months. We weren't as grand as Starbucks for our first office. It was my back bedroom. So uh, <laughs> But uh, uh, we can afford Starbucks now, though. So uh, that's good. No, we started out into 2020 with myself and two brand new colleagues. We left 2020 with 40 odd people in two countries. Many of my team I still haven't met face to face thanks to COVID. But not only did it not get in the way of expanding the business, it has been somewhat an accelerator and we'll probably touch on that later on. So we're about 40 odd people in Asia Pacific. There's another 400 of us in London, which is where we were first established. So, you know, growing rapidly all around and just opening the US offices at the moment. Fantastic. Well, I think what we're really interested in is Asia and the experience of Asia and the opportunity of Asia. I mean, Yves, it's interesting that it sounds like the majority of the Simpulse employees are in Asia. And you're, I think, joint CEO based out of Singapore. So that sort of sounds like a major vote of confidence for the region. Yeah, absolutely. And well, the past track record was as such, right? But we are very bullish towards the future. You know, we've been 25 years in core banking system implementation. So we have quite a bit of an understanding on how mature softwares are coming about. We've been able to ride that wave of growth. And of course, our ambition is always to be on the lookout for what's the next growth story, right? Where is the next innovative play coming from, right? And so we're always looking at that horizon to identify who are our next partners. And the partner strategy is a key part or a key pillar of what brings us further. And, you know, Thought Machine, in that regard, there's a very good match. I mean, in terms of product innovation, just reflecting on the 25 years of core banking, where, you know, from a legacy perspective, the release cycles of banks used to be six months to three quarters of a year for any new business features, right? And that's basically the prioritization that had to happen. In between, there was nothing possible just because it was so tremendously waterfall oriented, right? We now see with the new architecture principles and new products that are coming, such as a Thought Machine, where you can actually run multiple releases basically on a daily basis. So that was very inspiring to us and um, of course, led to our collaboration. On that six to 18 months plus, some people might not realize, certainly it's my background in core banking, that legacy core banking systems aren't always configurable for products, right? And especially the homegrown ones created by banks. They created the system around the product, right? So one of the biggest factors right now is they just can't launch products in less than six to 18 months. And that's just completely shocking. I mean, it's not, you know, big news to a vendor, right? But certainly inside a bank, it's a big issue. It is. It's very much outside of a standard. And some banks have, of course, in-house systems and they run full bespoke and therefore, you know, their development cycles are much longer. But we even see that with packaged software, you know, packaged software such as, like, say, SAP or Terminals or Avalog, where you have a much more standardized product. So even there, the release cycles are longer, right? And there's much more dependencies. And I think nowadays the needs are just much more there, right? The evolution of client needs are much quicker. And I think that's also where a modern value propositions are being born, right? Where you have to release features 
know, on a weekly basis. Nick, it'd be great to kind of understand a bit more about Thought Machine. Asia sort of seems to be a place where there is acceptance that this is the new modern way to do things. And people are, companies are really kind of getting behind it. So the best known recent launches of neobanks are out of places like Hong Kong with their virtual digital licenses. So it's sort of confluence of a few things going on. Nick, after London, Asia seemed to be the first place that thought machines went to. And again, is that following that trend as well? Yeah. So let me try and pick up both points because I think they are related. So very briefly, the reason, you know, why Asia first outside of London for us and so quickly after we came out of stealth in the UK is you've got a region which is incredibly diverse, heavily underbanked on average, but with, you know, rapidly growing economies. Now, even before COVID, that was slowing down a little and COVID has obviously, you know, hit hard. But in my view, that has created even more urgency for the incumbent banks and for NEOs to find new and innovative ways to serve a population that is also on average a heck of a lot younger than the West, massive mobile penetration, digitally native, and moving up into an expanding middle class. All of those social dynamics, you've got regulators that are heavily kind of incented by their governments to help drive the economies and provide banking almost as a human right. You've got countries like Thailand rolling out broadband to every village in the country for 4.0 to try and encourage that sort of digital. So you've got a lot, a lot of stuff going on and a lot of trends and pressures and all those sorts of things. So I think that's what makes Asia such a melting pot, an intense area for innovation. You know, to pick up on Damish's point, IT has served banks both well and badly. Right. So IT has clearly served banks well for kind of 70 odd years since IBM invented the mainframe and banks quickly realized the opportunity. But we've also been a handbrake on innovation for banks. Right. It is so hard for banks to create brand new products. And we see that because all banks basically offer, you know, current accounts, saving account, mortgages, credit cards. They all kind of look the same. Yeah. A few differences. It's not because banks are full of dumb, stupid, lazy people. You know, sure, there's a little bit about regulation and things, but it's because it's just been so hard and expensive. And if you look at it, it can be done. But if you say it can be done, but it takes a lot of people and a lot of money, you know, 9, 12, 18 months, that doesn't encourage innovation. That encourages incrementalism because what the Exco and the board want is successful innovation. And by definition, you know, that's incrementalism. If you take something like Thought Machine Vault, where you can prototype, you can build products in days and days and weeks, then you can afford to innovate, prototype the product, test it with an audience, work out where it failed, get the learnings, throw it away and go and do the next one. So I think what we are bringing is not just all of the advantages of cloud native and API and all that sort of thing, which makes it great for ecosystems and all that sort of thing. I think what we are providing is a back-end platform that for the first time is as agile as the channels. And so we're going to be able to encourage banks, whether neobanks or incumbents, to be able to experiment and introduce hyper-personalization beyond the app and back into what customers' jobs to be done are. You know, again, just bringing this timescale about why things are slow in banks, it's because these systems are monolithic, right? And Nick said a real watchword, which was 
cloud native. What does that actually mean? It means that actually the software platform is not modular, but deployed as a monolith, one massive install, right? Because when you do a massive install, you're essentially replacing the entire code base, in which case you really have to retest the entire code base again. And that takes time. When you break the system down into a set of services, that's becoming cloud native, right? And what it means is that I might just want to innovate just on the authentication module itself. And I can redeploy that module without deploying the entire monolithic solution and having to retest the entire platform because I've replaced every line of code. Now I'm just testing a single module, yeah? And that's what brings the agility. I mean, that's the big difference these days. It sounds like actually the job of systems integration or advisory around banking is sort of changing morphing and you know it's very different from what it was 25 years ago so that agility sounds like it needs to be a lot more kind of customer centric in terms of what it's doing because very quickly if you're not sort of adding value to customers people will know so that sort of feels different is that right do you think yeah, the speed is definitely increasing, you know, it has to do with you know, the feedback loops that are instantaneous and other industries are benchmarking us into this and the expectation towards financial services are rising, right? So it's just a matter of time. And I think we have not even seen the wave breaking yet, right? We're just seeing this huge buildup. Um, I always compare it a little bit towards, you know, I grew up in a small village with 2000 people and I used to go to you know, the butcher and the baker and where, you know, the cheese is being produced. And they were all separate, basically silo experiences that we've had, right? And for me, that's what banking traditionally was. What happened afterwards is actually all of those places disappeared and there were the big malls that were coming. They delivered a whole different set of experiences. They created almost like a platform and there were platform provided, the mall providers that built the real estate, they built the security, they built the escalators. Then the individual shops were populating. The mall delivered then an experience. And guess what? It was not just about those shops. It was the experience that came on top. So you would have lifestyle, you have entertainment and so on and so forth. And so that's exactly where I think this journey is going, whereby Banks have to decide, will they be marginalized to become a utility, meaning it will go into the background, right? One of the stores, or maybe they then build the platform and they own the client experience. Yeah, they provide, let's say, the real estate, they provide the escalator and the security and they house all of those shops, right? And they deliver then the experience. And I think people really need to be aware that banking of the future will not be banking. It will be connected to either a lifestyle experience. It will be connected to education. It will be connected to, you know, a project, some work. But for sure, it will not be a silo experience anymore, right? And um, this analogy really, I think, works in many ways, right? And could project a little bit towards what the future might hold for us. You know, you can go back to the 1990s, right, when Bill Gates said we need banking, but we don't need banks. So people are predicting the death of banks and their disappearance for many, many years, and it hasn't happened. But I think if you look at digital disruption in other industries, if you look at, you know, Amazon, you know, leading the e-commerce that's kind of disrupted the high street, if you look at how Napster started, and now we've got Spotify, and the music industry has fundamentally changed, you know, it happens at two speeds, right? It happens very, very slowly. For a long, long time, people thought Amazon was a joke. 
And then all of a sudden, it wasn't. So I think if anybody's sitting in the banking industry going, well, look, they started predicting we were going to die 20 years ago and we're still here, so we're good now. Hey, all that's happened is it's just that little bit slower. And when the knee arrives, then the disruption will come. Now, you know, will that be next week, next month or next year? I'm both not smart enough to pick it and not dumb enough to try and pick it. But I think it's comfortable to say it's coming, right? I mean, change genuinely, big change is coming. I mean, just to echo some of the points that we talked about, Asia, as Nick said earlier, it's so diverse that when we're looking at customer groups, we have um, the rich here are getting a lot younger, but then there's that big separation between the banked and the underbanked or the unbanked. So from my point of view, from a customer point of view, it's really banks at the moment, it's like one size fits all. Um, And really where I want to take it, and it's actually something that myself and Dave looked at 17 years ago, is how do you take that experience? How do you actually tailor that around the customer? Again, we've got people that are underbanked or unbanked. How do we help them to kind of start saving? How do we help them to start investing? And that's looking at things like social accounts. People want to invest. Maybe they can't afford to, but if you group people together, definitely we can then start looking at these more social accounts. And then if we look at the other end of the scale where the rich are getting younger, they don't want to be speaking to an RM. They don't actually feel like they want to bother an RM. They want to do everything on their phone as well. So again, how do we create these solutions where it actually personalizes itself around you as the individual? And then again, echoing Nick's point as well, like Asia, a lot of the countries here have kind of skipped the fixed line telephones. So we have huge infrastructure for broadband. The cell network is massive. Everyone's got a mobile phone. So again, to me, that's really what makes Asia so exciting is everyone from your granny that owns a shop in the middle of Vietnam that has to pay something. They have a mobile phone down to teenagers, kids, Even my daughter's already asking for a mobile phone. She's only eight, which she's not getting. Um, But it's really booming in Asia. From everything that we've said, the building blocks are there. It's just how you put those building blocks together, which is going to be kind of critical into the future. I think it's very timely, especially, you know, for the startups and the small existing banks, because, you know, my own experience in my current startup is we've outsourced all of the design stuff because, Design isn't about like one designer. It's about a whole orchestra of different skills. And for small organizations, they can't afford necessarily to get the entire team. And the danger is you dumb it down to look and feel on one designer, right? And that's not what's going to win them. It's going to be the entire experience. It's like the tone of voice, the look and feel, the usability. You know, there's so much more to the experience that actually you need, you know, a small army these days, right? I'd pick up on that because I think whilst there are some supremely successful fintechs out there and people doing some incredible things, if you look at neobanks, I don't think they've really rocked the world like everybody thought they should. And I think a lot of that is because they've either just stopped at the app or they really provide the same thing in a slightly different way. They don't create a compelling enough difference that I can be bothered to move my salary, my mortgage and all those sorts of things and change my primary bank and therefore allow them to make money, right? They're almost like a fashion accessory, which is, oh, it's a pretty cool app at the moment. It's got a metal card and I'll chuck a couple hundred bucks in a month and I'll use it, but I'm not going to feed them what they need in order to become profitable. Whereas even the neobanks need to, A, look at their 
technical stack at the back end because if they build it on the same stuff as the big banks do, they'll face the same constraints. And then, as you say, figure out a way that even though they're small, they can tap into that talent set. You know, people like Fraser, but they couldn't afford to hire for themselves or a team like that themselves, but they can outsource and do something you know, really, really different. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this comes back to a point that I banged on for a few years. So I get on my soapbox, but (laughs) the experience is very strongly related to the actual business model and the business strategy. So if you're not changing that, all you're doing is digitizing the bank. You're not creating a digital organization. And that's where the marriage of management consultancy and design is absolutely spot on and compelling. Right, because now we can start to reimagine those journeys and what it means to which group of customers. Oh, absolutely. And I just wanted to share a story. Last year, I worked with Fault Machine to come up with a bank or a model bank. And um, interestingly, at the time, everyone or all the challengers, all the NEOs were like, what we all want to do is just open accounts the fastest. So you'll see stats going up like, Two minutes, 30 seconds, one minute. And everyone's just chasing this to get it down and down and down. I kind of pulled back and said, well, let's go and speak to the customers. And actually what the customer said was, look, we don't care if the process is longer. As long as we know why you're asking for that process or why you're asking for that information, then I'm happy to give it to you. So we don't really care about this speed of opening. And then this is really where kind of hyper-personalization comes in. Now, to me, there's kind of two types of hyper-personalization. There's the visible hyper-personalization where products are being offered depending on your spending. But then there's the hidden hyper-personalization. And actually, we had to do this with Fault Machine. Even though we had this process of opening accounts and we went down steps, um, Fault Machine could open the account again really, really quickly. So what we had to do is we had to put false delays. So when you actually input your password, we had to slow down Fault Machine and have a spinner so that it built trust with the customer that actually something's happening, an account is being made. And then this is what I'm saying about going into the hyper-personalization you can't see. You may have a power user that is very familiar with banks, and we could fly them through that process quite quickly. However, you may have a user that might start hesitating on the first screen, which if that happens, we can start slowing that process down, or we can actually send them through a different, longer process to gain more trust. So it's about also looking at journeys and moving people in and out of journeys at certain points with relation to how they're actually interacting with the app or down to hesitation. So it's a really interesting place. The banks all think that to win, you have to open up an account quick. Actually, when we spoke to the customers, that's not the case. And actually I had to slow down Nick's system. Too fast, Nick. You're too fast. So, um, listen, we're out of time. We've basically talked about the snowflake on top of the iceberg in terms of the opportunity here. But great to hear the perspective. It's great to meet you all. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, we should have another session at some point and go into more detail. Be great. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Don Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week.
The Dave and Dom Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago, and Austin, Texas.